Along the pathways of the old front line, we find the cemeteries of the Great War, those silent cities, as Rudyard Kipling called them, where the dead of the Great War stand forevermore. For this period of annual remembrance, we visit five little-known cemeteries of the First World War. As the last leaves fall from the trees and we're greeted by crisp November mornings, it's that time once more to remember. Armistice Day approaches and Remembrance Sunday. It's that time when we stop and pause and we remember those in our own family tree who connect us to the Great War. But we remember too our travels along the old front line, the places we've seen. And I think that always adds something, a different dimension almost, to the way that we remember once we've visited those battlefields of the Great War. This year I won't be in Flanders or the Somme for the 11th of November. I'll be here in South Yorkshire. But my mind will wander across to those places and I'll think of the trips that I've made this year and trips that are yet to come. For 11 o'clock I'll walk down to the war graves in our local churchyard and I'll pass the houses of men who fell at Arras, at Thiepval, in the fighting at Third Ypres. The Great War is all around us, is ever present in so many ways. And on that landscape of the Great War, what we find are the cemeteries, the soldiers' cemeteries. Kipling called them the silent cities, but they're not just British cemeteries scattered across the old front line. There are men from many, so many nations buried in the war cemeteries, from Flanders down to the Vosges. And in this episode, for remembrance, we'll take a look at five different cemeteries from five different nations, which might inspire you to take your own travels across those battlefields a little further in the coming year. We begin our journey in the Champagne, east of Reims, in the French sector of the Western Front. The recent film, All Quiet on the Western Front, has reminded us that for most of the war, on most of the front, the fight was between France and Germany. France in 1914 held well over 400 miles of the Western Front, and even by halfway through the war, Britain was still only holding around about 100 of it. So France took the lion's share, something that French generals and French politicians were not shy in commenting on to their British counterparts. And here in these battlefields east of Reims, as we move across the vast open fields of the Champagne in this chalky downland region as it moves towards the Argonne Forest, we're certainly reminded of France's sacrifice. There are vast cemeteries in places like montmelon le grand and in the grounds close to where the fighting in 1915 and 1917 are located. But we haven't come to a large cemetery here. It's a small one, unusual for a French cemetery from the First World War. This is the Necropole Nationale de la 28e Brigade. That's the French National Cemetery of the 28th Brigade. The 28th Brigade was part of the 14th French Division, and it fought in this sector during the Battles of the Champagne in September of 1915. We're on a road between Saint-Hilaire-le-Grand and the village of Soin, and the vast open fields so typical of the Champagne are in front of us. The ground is rising, and a long single track 
takes our eye across this landscape up towards the cemetery that we can see on the high ground beyond. And walking up that track, we get an idea of the vastness of this landscape. Over to our right, beyond, just to the north of the village of Soin, is a vast military camp still used by the French army today. Within that is miles and miles of First World War trenches and shell holes and mine craters and village disappeared villages that were lost and never rebuilt. But we can also see the pyramid-like memorial to the battles of the Champagne. And those battles reached a crescendo here on the 25th of September 1915 when the French army attacked. That was part of a joint operation with the British who were attacking at Luz in northern France at the same time and French troops also attacking at Hill 145 or Vimy Ridge as the British later called it. For many years it was thought that France's worst day of the war was in August 1914 during the battles of the frontier when over 27,000 French soldiers died in a single day. But recent research has shown that the 25th of September 1915 was quite potentially an even more deadlier day for France, with deaths maybe even peaking that 27,000 figure. And one of the things about walking this area and visiting the French cemeteries here, and indeed the German ones, is their vastness, the scale of them, gives us an insight into these terrible losses. But in some respects, it makes it harder for us to connect with the soldiers that are buried there. That's different here as we walk up the final part of this track we find a smaller cemetery and we find a very unusual cemetery. In most French cemeteries the dead are commemorated by crosses. Here we see different types of grave marker. It's a most unusual design and I've put some photographs on the podcast website for you to see it. I came here with a friend once who described it as like a set out of a sci-fi movie and it is most unusual. What it is is a cemetery specific to a period of the war and specific to a unit, the 28th Brigade, which comprised of two regiments of infantry, French regiments of infantry, the 35th and the 42nd, who were recruited from Belfort. There are 147 graves here, men who mainly died on the 25th of September 1915, but a few killed later on. It was a cemetery that was made by a chaplain, Father Doncourt, who had been a chaplain to these units here during the Battles of Champagne and came back here in 1919 to find and make sure that the graves of the men who'd served alongside were properly marked and remembered. He later wrote, I saw, I believe, the most horrible aspects of death during the war. I saw in the beautiful wheat of 1914, blackened under the sun for a day, the first corpses, I saw the limits of Fort Devaux, of the living people sharing their shelters with forty dead. Would I tell you that never did my heart suffer like six months after the armistice, when returning to the Champagne, to the places of our great battles, which became silent and deserted, I had to see, left for four years in the great Son of God, even on the ground where they had fallen, our comrades of 1915, forgotten. The land of the fighting zone had become a dead land. Now only families still wander on the ground in search of a missing son. And it was into that deserted, seemingly forgotten landscape 
that Donker came to ensure that the men of these two regiments here were not forgotten and the cemetery was established. Around it, the trenches and the barbed wire and the shattered artefacts of war still lay everywhere, but the cemetery rose out of all of that like a phoenix to remember those men who died here in 1915. Normally, cemeteries like these would have been closed and moved into bigger French cemeteries. This one survived, and that makes it unusual that here is a French battlefield cemetery from specific units still on the ground where the fighting took place and the dead buried close to where they fell. The cemetery recalls, therefore, the fighting in this sector for an objective called the Ferme de Vacs, and these men, most of them, died either in the capture of that ground or in the subsequent defence of it, following those great battles of the Champagne. Among the dead, when we look at the headstones that are here and research the names, we find an incredible 11 recipients of the Légion d'honneur. The Légion d'honneur is France's highest medal, awarded in the same way that the Victoria Cross is awarded, although Légion d'honneurs can be given to farmers who have worked all their life and done well for France on the land but in battle it is still France's highest decoration for gallantry. And these men buried here, these 11 recipients of it in this cemetery, were not given the medal for farming, but for attacking German positions and some incredible acts of heroism. Among them is Colonel Henri Tesson, who was the commander of the 35th Regiment of Infantry. He was killed taking his men into the second-line positions in this area. He was 48 years old from the Finestre region of France, and he was buried facing the cross alongside his 14 company commanders who were buried around him. A staggering indictment into the scale of French officer losses in battles like this, and it shows just how that day, 25th of September 1915, just how deadly it was. There are brothers buried here, Charles and Edmund Russ. They were from Strasbourg, killed the same day, 25th of September 1915, and a third brother, Paul, had been killed a year before in the fighting in the Marne in September of 1914. And what we see in this cemetery, just by looking at these graves, is the same kind of insights that we get when we go to a British and Commonwealth cemetery. We've got an insight here into France's scale of losses in that battle. A senior commander, his company commanders, brothers killed, a family losing three sons. It gives us that insight into France's struggle and terrible losses in the Great War, and that's why it's important to come to these places. And when we scan our eyes along the lines of graves and using sites like the Memorial GenWeb, which has got a huge amount of information on this cemetery on it, and I'll put a link to that on the podcast website, we come to the school teacher, for example, Lieutenant Jacques Licker. He was from the 42nd Regiment of Infantry, killed on the 25th of September, aged 32. He was a school teacher in a primary school in Montpellier. Not far away is Captain Paul de Quesnoy. He was the machine gun officer of the 35th Regiment of Infantry. Killed on the 25th of September, like so many here, aged 31, he was from Tourcoing in northern France. He'd been awarded the Légion d'honneur for bravery in the very earliest days of the war, between the 7th and the 19th of August 1914, as the machine gun officer of his regiment. He'd been badly wounded in that action and later again his hand was so badly injured that he could hardly use it, but he remained with his men, remained in his position and died alongside them in the Battle Seer in 1915. This is one small cemetery. Around it, not far away, are the bigger ones. But within them, 
are the same kind of stories, the same kind of stories that brings the faces of the Poilus of the Great War, the French soldiers of the Great War, brings them back to life. And it's important to come to these places to understand the scale. France, by the end of the war, lost 1.4 million dead. Britain and France were similar-sized populations in 1914, despite the fact that France was so much bigger in terms of land mass. But by the end of the war, Britain, excluding the empire, had lost three-quarters of a million dead. So France had lost almost twice as many. And it's important to remember that and understand that, as we can do as we stand in places like this here, on the high ground above the vast fields of the Champagne. We've moved further down the old front line now, into and beyond the Argonne Forest, and we're in the rising grounds, the wooded rising grounds of the Meuse-Argonne battlefield, where the men of the American Expeditionary Force fought in the final phase of the Great War from September through to November of 1918. American troops in this sector and along the entire part of their sector of the Western Front fought right up to the last minute of the war. And we've come to the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery. Now some of you might think it's strange to include a cemetery like this in five little-known cemeteries of the Great War, but despite the fact that this is a massive cemetery, it is not frequently visited. Most American visitors to Europe, if you said to them, what is the largest American war cemetery in Europe, probably most of them would say Omaha Beach, the Normandy American Cemetery. But that's not even the largest American cemetery in Europe from World War II. That's the Lorraine Cemetery in eastern France, with over 12,000 dead. Omaha Beach, the Normandy American Cemetery, has 10,000. Here in the Meuse-Argonne, there's more than 14,000 burials in this cemetery from the First World War. And as you come in through the main entrance and drive up to the visitors' building, you stand and look across to the cemetery, and there is this vast hillside of row upon row, almost into infinity, of white crosses. And I've been here with many, many English groups over the years who ask, is this where the closing sequence of Oh, What a Lovely War was filmed? And in that film... John Mills playing Sir Douglas Haig is filmed a close, tight-up shot of him standing near some white crosses, and then it pans out and there's this hillside of white crosses. And that symbolises, of course, Britain's sacrifice in the Great War. And that was filmed, incidentally, on the South Downs. The crosses were specially planted for that shot. But the point I guess I'm making here is that when people come here, they look at this, and that's what they see. That's what they think of really probably if they think of the losses of the first world war is a hillside like this covered in white crosses but this is not britain's dead it's not france's dead this is america's dead and it's a testimony to the huge scale of losses that the american expeditionary force suffered in those final six weeks of the great war this was america's first conflict outside of america its first time fighting on european soil and when the war was over and the tens of thousands of Americans who died, what to do with their final resting place? Where would they remain buried? And the decision was made to let it be the choice of the families of the fallen, whether they remain in foreign fields to be buried in an American war cemetery or be brought home to be buried in America, either in a family grave or in an American military cemetery like Arlington, for example. All of this was done at the cost of the US government. 
So what happened is that across the battlefields where American units had fought, there were battlefield cemeteries, a handful of graves by the side of a road or in a trench, men buried in so many places on the objectives that they captured in those final weeks of fighting. Those could not permanently be remembered in that way. So all of the remains of American soldiers were brought into key sites, and here the men who died in the Meuse-Argonne offensive were brought into this vast area of ground and reburied. The families then made their choice whether to repatriate or remain, and in the years following the Great War, thousands of soldiers' bodies were taken back to America from this cemetery. That left lots of gaps, and that looked strange, so an architect was brought in to redesign the cemetery, and the soldiers were then exhumed and reburied again. So when we look at the graves of the men who were buried in here, we're seeing men who were buried three times, once originally on the battlefield, then moved into here just after the war, and then moved again within the cemetery to place them where they are today. And because of that, it's kind of broken down, really, areas where men came from. So you can't go to a plot of the cemetery where men from a specific unit are necessarily buried or from a specific battle. So it can take a bit of work to find and connect with these soldiers in these massive American cemeteries from the First World War. But they're incredibly impressive. If you walk along the rows, the way they're designed is that the, the lines of crosses just disappear into the distance. And standing here as well, we've got to consider that 62% of America's dead were repatriated after the war. So we're only looking at a fraction, really, of the total casualties that were once potentially buried here. The cemetery covers a, a vast, more than 130 acres of ground. It was finished in 1937, only a few years before the Second World War. There are 14,246 burials here, and there are 954 men commemorated on the memorial to the missing. Because the Americans, just like any other nation in the Great War, had soldiers whose remains were never found for all sorts of reasons. And they decided, like the British, to have memorials to commemorate those who had no known grave. And that's up at the back of the cemetery, and you can wander along the list of names there, and occasionally you'll see a small metal disc alongside some of the names, and that indicates a soldier whose remains have been found and were either repatriated back to America or are now buried here in this cemetery. It gives us an insight, really, into just how deadly a battle the Meuse-Argonne was, and it's certainly a subject and a battlefield that I intend to return to next year with the old front line. We mentioned the Légion d'honneur recipients buried in the 28th Brigade Cemetery. In this cemetery, there are nine Medal of Honor recipients. The Medal of Honor is America's highest decoration, equivalent to the Victoria Cross. In fact, after the Great War, America awarded the Unknown Warrior in Westminster Abbey the Medal of Honor, and Great Britain awarded the Victoria Cross to America's Unknown Soldier. And among those nine Medal of Honor recipients in here is one who was awarded it only in recent times, retrospectively. Freddie Stowers was a corporal in the 371st Infantry Regiment of the 93rd Division, and he was born in South Carolina in 1896. Drafted in 1917, he was an African-American who served in one of the black divisions of the American Army. Black soldiers in the American Expeditionary Force were segregated. They fought in their own units and his was one of many that took part in the fighting in those final weeks of the war. He was killed in an attack on Cote 188, a heavily defended hill. 
and his Medal of Honor citation reads as follows. Corporal Stowers distinguished himself by exceptional heroism while serving as squad leader in Company C, 371 Infantry Regiment. His company was the lead company during the attack on Hill 188 in the Champagne-Marne sector. A few minutes after the attack began, the enemy ceased firing and began climbing up onto the parapets of their trenches, holding up their arms as if wishing to surrender. The enemy's actions caused the American forces to cease fire and to come out into the open. As the company started moving forward, and when within about 100 metres of the trench line, the enemy jumped back into their trenches and greeted Corporal Stowers' company with interlocking bands of machine gun fire and mortar fire, causing well over 50% casualties. Faced with incredible enemy resistance, Corporal Stowers took charge, setting such a courageous example of personal bravery and leadership that he inspired his men to follow him into the attack. With extraordinary heroism and complete disregard of personal danger under devastating fire, he crawled forward leading his squad towards an enemy machine gun nest which was causing heavy casualties to his company. After fierce fighting, the machine gun position was destroyed and the enemy soldiers were killed. Displaying great courage, Corporal Stowers continued to press the attack against a determined enemy, while crawling forward and urging his men to continue in the attack, on a second trench line he was gravely wounded by machine gun fire. Although Corporal Stowers was mortally wounded, he pressed forward, urging on the members of his squad until he died. Inspired by the heroism and display of bravery of Corporal Stowers, his company continued the attack against incredible odds, contributing to the capture of Hill 188 and causing heavy enemy casualties. Corporal Stowers' conspicuous gallantry, extraordinary heroism and supreme devotion to his men were well above and beyond the call of duty, following the finest traditions of military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. While recommended at the time for the Medal of Honour, it wasn't awarded. The segregation of black troops in the First World War gives us an insight into the level of racism that existed within America during that period. And there were many in America who thought that black soldiers should not be taking part in the fighting. So it's clear that many did not receive at the time the level of recognition and the awards that they should have done for their bravery in battle. In the 1990s, America looked at this again and realised the injustice that had taken place here. And a campaign pushed forward the idea that retrospective Medal of Honours should be awarded right back to the American Civil War to black soldiers who never received them. And Freddie Stowers was one of those. So when we come here, we see his grave, like the other Medal of Honour winners, buried in the cemetery, picked out in gold. As you walk up the central aisle of the cemetery, Freddie Stowers is on the left-hand side, almost at the far end, as you walk up towards the memorial to the missing. Buried elsewhere in the cemetery is a famous American sportsman of that generation, Eddie Grant. He was a baseball player in Major League Baseball. Born in Franklin, Massachusetts in 1883, he was educated at Harvard and played for the Philadelphia Phillies and later for the New York Giants. His best year was 1910 when he batted 268, drove in 67 runs and stole 25 bases. He enlisted when America entered the war in April 1917. He didn't wait to be drafted. And there is a big connection in America in probably every nation between sport and war. 
At the beginning of the Great War in Britain, there were sportsmen's battalions, football battalions. Sportsmen stepped forward to enlist to set examples to others, and Eddie Grant's was certainly an example of that in America. He became a captain in the 307th Infantry Regiment of the 77th Division and was killed on the 5th of October 1918, whilst he and his men were looking for the lost battalion in the Argonne Forest. So the death of a famous American baseball player ties in to one of the famous incidents of the American army in the Meuse-Argonne Forest. He was one of eight major league players killed or died on active service with the American forces in the Great War. So again, those sportsmen who set that example by enlisting often paid for that example with their lives here on the battlefields of the Great War. This is an impressive, massive cemetery. It's hard to take in the scale of it, but it's an important place to come to to understand that although America only entered the war in 1917, its troops played such a pivotal role in the final battles on the Western Front. And as a nation, the deaths to tens of thousands who died during that period was nothing compared to what it would suffer in the next war. But nevertheless, it was a generation in America that at the time was memorialised across America. Memorials were placed in all the towns and cities, war memorials commemorating the dead, statues commemorating regiments and divisions, and here on the American battlefields, they placed their own beacons on the landscape to remember those doughboys who had fought and died and sacrificed so much in those final weeks of the war. One of the many visits I've made to this cemetery was in 2008 when we were filming here with Michael Palin for the last day of World War I documentary we did for Time Watch. Some of the final casualties that America suffered on the 11th of November 1918 are buried here. But what I found out from the superintendent of the cemetery was that America, just like the French and the British, had a similar process in selecting its unknown soldier. It had exhumed a number of soldiers from different battlefield sites and then one was chosen in secret. The others who were not chosen were brought together and buried in a row in this cemetery. The row, the graves, isn't marked. There's nothing to say that these unknown soldiers are any different to the others. And in some ways, of course, they aren't. But these men are part of a wider story, of a story of America's youth that went to war in 1917 and in those final years and in those final days paid such a heavy price, a price we see reflected along the endless, endless lines of white crosses here in the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery. We've moved further west now, and we're in the Bay of the Somme, behind the lines on the Somme front of the First World War. And we're close to the village of Noyel that overlooks the Bay of the Somme. And here, down a little track at the back of the village, is quite a large cemetery from the First World War. Not a British and Commonwealth cemetery, although it is maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. This is a Chinese cemetery from the First World War. And buried in here are men of the Chinese Labour Corps. The Chinese Labour Corps was a unit of the British Army recruited in China at British colonies in China from 1916. Most of the men who served in it were from the Shandong province of China. The reason for their recruitment and their eventual use on the Western Front 
was part of the British investment in infrastructure, in labour. There was a direct connection between the vast amount of labour that you could put to work behind the front to enable the front to continue, so the provision of ammunition and supplies and war material, timber for the trenches, water for the troops, supplies to come up in terms of bombs, bullets and bayonets. All of that was required and needed a vast workforce to operate it, to make it function, to enable this supply route from the rear area to the front line to continue to enable the war to continue. And the British invested in that infrastructure and in that workforce by going to the far corners of their own empire to have men, for example, from the South African Native Labour Corps. They were recruited in South Africa and brought over men from the British West Indies Regiment, the Fijian Labour Corps. There were so many different labour units that served in so many different capacities behind the lines on the Western Front. But even that wasn't enough. Even the the manpower from the empire was not enough. And over 100,000 Chinamen were recruited And from 1917, they came across to France and served not in a fighting capacity, but in that capacity behind the front. There were occasions in which they got caught up in battles in March of 1918 as the Germans advanced on the Somme front. They overran some positions where Chinese Labour Corps units were. And I've come across instances of Chinese soldiers being killed by shell fire, for example. But most of the men buried in this cemetery are those who succumbed to Spanish flu to influenza that was sweeping across Europe from October 1918 onwards and many of the men in here were killed in the second wave of that in early 1919. But the Chinese Labour Corps performed an important post-war role as well because many of these soldiers who served in the Chinese Labour Corps were on fixed-term contracts which meant that when the war was over they were still serving and they would still be serving for some time. So they were put to use on the actual battlefields, clearing the battlefields up, removing the ordnance, the shells and the bombs, clearing away the barbed wire and burying it in shell holes, and also recovering the dead. So an important legacy that China was involved with in the post-war world was the creation and the concentration of cemeteries in the early 1920s. The battlefield cemeteries that we know today and the post-war concentration cemeteries like Tynecott, for example, or Polkapel up in Flanders, or Serre Road Number 2 down on the Somme, all of these cemeteries saw men from the Chinese Labour Corps being used to go out and search for isolated burials and search for the dead whose grave markers had been destroyed by clearing the battlefields and recovering the bodies of those who had not been found So many of the men buried in here were involved in that task and while influenza was sweeping across Europe, men who were still stationed in camps, the close confines of camps, I would guess, were particularly vulnerable to contracting it. This was seen in British and Commonwealth units that were still in France at that time, in barracks, in the army of the Rhine at Cologne, for example. They had similar problems with influenza. And here, with these Chinese labour units that had their base very close to here at Noyel on the the Bay of the Somme, they had casualties from this as well. In fact, there were probably more casualties in the Chinese Labour Corps from influenza than any other cause of death. But that, of course, was the nature of a unit that worked behind the front, doing this vital role. Their battle honours were not the traditional over-the-top and through-the-enemy trenches, 
their important role was kind of less sexy, really, in terms of combat on the ground, but vitally, vitally important to keep that line of supply going from the base, from the ports, up towards the battlefield area, because soldiers can't fight without water or food or bullets or bombs and all the other things that they require. And so the Chinese Labour Corps, over 100,000 of these men, had such a vital role in all of that. Now, this is not the only Chinese cemetery that exists on the battlefields of the First World War. It's one of a handful of such cemeteries. There's one on the Somme, the Chinese and Indian cemetery at Ayet, for example. This one was designed by Edwin Luchens, one of the principal architects of the Imperial War Graves Commission. And although it is what we'd now call a Commonwealth cemetery, there is no cross of sacrifice here. That's an obvious Christian symbol, which does not apply to the men of various religions, I would guess, that are buried in this cemetery and not Christian. There's no stone of remembrance, but there is a typical layout of a cemetery. So there's an entranceway which has a Chinese design of archway that you walk through to go into the cemetery, and they have the standard British and Commonwealth headstones for the period. There's no cap badge of the Chinese Labour Corps on these headstones, and the name of the soldier is written in Chinese script along with his service number. The ones that are buried in cemeteries like this were issued with memorial plaques, or their families were issued with memorial plaques. They couldn't deliver most of the plaques to an address in China, so I believe that the plaques went back with serving members of the Chinese Labour Corps upon discharge. They were sent back home, and they took the plaques back with them to be given to the families of those who had died. I've only ever seen one Chinese Labour Corps plaque come up. A friend of mine who collected them, he had over 500 of them, he had one and it had the service number in the box rather than the soldier's name. Chinese script, I guess, was too difficult for the process that they used to manufacture the plaques. The Commonwealth Wargraves Commission database shows that just over 2,000 men of the Chinese Labour Corps died in the Great War. 841 of them are buried here, so that's almost half of them. And when you walk amongst the rows of the graves here, it's interesting to ponder how men from a very different culture travelled halfway around the world to take part in a war that probably they felt they had very little connection to, but yet their work and their role on the battlefield was so vital. And in the post-war worlds, their connection to the construction of the cemeteries is something that should never be forgotten or diminished. Back when I lived on the Somme, they would issue a regular magazine about local places of interest and cultural events and all kinds of things. And in the summer, they would suggest some interesting places to go and visit for families. And this cemetery was one of those that was often suggested. In the early days, they used to say that the Chinese Labour Corps was there to do the washing of the British Army, to wash its clothes, which, of course, was very far from the truth when you consider what an important role that they had. But as time went by, I saw the way that they spoke about what the Chinese soldiers had done in the war. I saw that change, thankfully change. And one year, they ran a little article about how a group of men from the Chinese Labour Corps had actually taken their discharge in Noyel after the war and that a tiny Chinese community had grown from that and that they were still there today. So there were descendants of men from the Chinese Labour Corps still living in that area of the Somme and that they come down on a regular basis to remember these men of the Chinese Labour Corps. 
So it's a cemetery that's away from the main Somme battlefields in an area behind the lines, close to the Bay of the Somme itself, in an area that was a logistics hub with trains and the railways taking the supplies to the front and a base for these Chinese Labour Corps soldiers. And I would say, come and visit these men, come and understand the important tasks that they had and the important place that they had in all of our history and our understanding of the First World War. Our journey continues and takes us to Flanders now, to a German cemetery from the First World War. Most who come to Belgium to visit the cemeteries in Flanders, if they come to a German cemetery, they visit Langemark, and we've covered that in a previous episode of the podcast. Many go there believing that with 44,000 graves, Langemark is the largest German cemetery from the First World War, but in fact that's Menin, with over 48,000 burials. But it's neither of those cemeteries that we've come to. We've come further north to the village of Vladslow, which is near to Dixmude on the Isar fronts, the Isar Canal that runs north from Ypres up to the coast, the old medieval superhighway of the cloth trade when barges carried cloth from Ypres up onto the canal systems of North Belgium and then onwards to other canal systems across Europe. That became part of the front line and in the sector north of Ypres is where the Belgian army faced the German army in this top end of the Western Front where it ended on the beach near Newport. Vladslow was a village behind the German front line. This was a place where soldiers came to in the wooded area around Vladslow to rest. It was an original cemetery of just over 3,200 burials. There were medical facilities close by, so some of the men originally buried in here died of their wounds received on that part of the front. There's a farm, in fact, just down the road from the cemetery that was used as a rest area. I've seen it described as the Talbot House of the German army. It was a place where soldiers could go to to watch concerts and have religious services in the accompaniment of a chaplain to the forces that the Germans had in their army as well. And there was also a soldier's canteen there. And I believe that that building that's there in the woods is certainly at least part of it is original. Also directly opposite in the wooded area, down a little path which is signposted now, is an original German regimental memorial, one of the few that survives on this part of the battlefield. So this was an area behind the lines and it was an area in the post-war world that was chosen to concentrate in burials because there were once far more German cemeteries, not just in Belgium but across France as well, than there are today. In the post-Second World War world, with West Germany now taking on the responsibility of the Volksbund, the German Wargraves Commission, they simply could not afford to maintain that many cemeteries and the decision was made to close them and move those bodies into Kameradengraben, comrades' graves, mass graves, in existing cemeteries or rebury them in plots in individual graves if that cemetery was big enough. But as we see when we visit this cemetery, individual grave markers were all removed and there are plaques laid flat in the ground similar to Langemark, similar to Menin, where there are multiple names on there, which leads many casual visitors to believe that the Germans buried multiple men in the same grave, but in fact they are individually buried, it's just they have a collective grave marker listing their names. So with those post-Second World War concentrations, 
There are now 25,644 German burials in Vladslo German Cemetery, making it the third largest in this Flanders battlefield area, but twice as big as Tyne Cot, for example. So it just shows the sheer scale of the German dead in this cemetery. And it's in a wooded area, as I mentioned. You walk into it through the entrance. The trees of the surrounding woodland give it a different character, but also it's planted with oak trees. These are the trees planted on the graves of warriors, of Krieger, and that's very much part of the culture of these German cemeteries, giving them a different atmosphere, a darker atmosphere, many people think. When we look at the burials that are in the cemetery, we see men killed in the fighting in the early stages of the war, in the Battle of the Issa, when the Belgian army, under the orders of their king, flooded the Issa plain. But there were battles along the Issa Canal and around Dixmude in particular in October 1914, and this cemetery has a lot of German dead from that period of the war. After that, it became static warfare for almost four years, with no big battles on the Issa front apart from a period in 1917 when the British Army took over the Newport sector and the Germans attacked and pushed us from one side of the canal and our positions to another. Otherwise, it was the day-to-day activities of trench warfare. So a lot of the men buried in here were killed by sniper fire, machine gun fire, were killed by trench mortars or daily shelling or gas attacks or whatever it was, just by holding the line. And up on the coast, there were German gun batteries here, manned by the German naval forces, and there were German marines on this part of the front, and we see all of that reflected in the burials here as well. I've also seen the graves of German nurses in this cemetery. There's a few of them. For example, Krankenschwester Maria Eibelweiser, who served with the Kaiserliche Lazarat Hochberg and died on the 4th of April 1918. This was a hospital located near Tournai, across uh, the other side of Belgium from where Vladslo is located. So there are women buried in the cemetery as well. But it's the story of a woman who did not serve in the Great War but is greatly connected to this cemetery that we see most visibly when we enter Vladslo German Cemetery. At the far end, up towards the hedge line of the cemetery, we can see two statues. And when we approach these statues, we discover they're not depicting brave German soldiers or a scene from the war. They're depicting a mother and a father, broken and destroyed by the loss of their son. These are pieces of artwork, sculpture, by the German artist Keta Kolwitz. Her son Peter was killed in the fighting near here in October 1914, and his grave is just below the statues in this cemetery. They depict her and her husband Karl, bereft and lost and mourning for their son Peter, killed in the early stages of the Great War. She was a remarkable artist in so many ways, and her work was considered degenerate a generation later by the Nazis. I always find it incredible that she managed to survive the Nazi period, but died just before the end of the war in April 1945, having lived in Berlin, having survived the bombing, having survived the Nazis. She died just before the end of the next war. But her work lives on, and these two remarkable statues showing how the loss of a son 
affected a family, affected so many families. All the graves that we've seen so far in our visits across these cemeteries, family after family, were feeling exactly the same kind of emotions that we see expressed in this artwork by Colvitz. A version of her mother mourning that we see here is in the Neuerwache in Berlin, in the Unter den Linden, the main street running from the Brandenburg Gate right through the heart of Berlin. And the Neuerwache, the old Prussian guardhouse that once stood aside the Berliner Schloss, became the place under the Nazis of the tomb of the unknown German soldier or soldiers. There may have been more than one buried there. But subsequently in the post-war world, it became a place of commemoration of those who had died in conflict. And now when we go into the Neuwacker in Berlin, we see one of the Kolwitz's works, a mother mourning as a central piece there, just as it should be, expressing the sorrow and the grief that so many German families felt over so many decades in two world wars. And it's good to see in recent times with the re-emergence of the Volkstrauertag, the day of remembrance for the dead of those who fell in conflict. Germany has begun in a small way, a very small way, with all the overtones, particularly of the Second World War, in the back of their minds, no doubt, they've begun to remember. And it's important, I think, for that to take place. We can't ignore the existence of the German armed forces in two world wars, and nor should we, nor can we. In both conflicts, they were in places over which they had no dominion, no right to be. But the war has ended. Germany is no longer our enemy. They've been our ally in NATO for so many decades, and it is right to remember and understand the dead. And harking back once more to the Netflix release of All Quiet on the Western Front, a film about Germans in German, made by Germans, one would hope that this might inspire new generations to ask questions about what is the meaning of the dead in cemeteries like Vladslow. It's a cemetery that always, like any German cemetery, I think, really does make you pause and think, what is the place of these men in our collective history? How do we see them during the war? This would have been called a Heldenfeld, a hero's field. Can these men as the enemy be ever seen as heroes? There's no doubt that there were incredible acts of bravery, and amongst the burials here there are men awarded some of Germany's highest honours at the time. Around the edge of the cemetery, there are some of the original headstones brought in from other cemeteries that were moved here, perhaps some of them on original graves in the original plot of the cemetery. One commemorating two brothers with a very ornate grave with a large Germanic sword on it, very much a grave of a Krieger, of a warrior. Others are made from stone from the regions in Germany they came from, Professor Peter Dahl, in his work as a geologist as well as an historian, has looked at some of these stones and seen that they come from the type of rocks, from the type of geology of the regions of Germany that, that these men who they commemorate came from themselves. So there's a kind of nice local connection there. And to Dave Ledslow, as with many German cemeteries, with the multiple names on the graves, with the Kameradengrab and the Massengrab and the mass graves, there's a kind of anonymity here it's not like a british cemetery but it is i mean there are still individuals buried here with stories with faces with lives who loved and were loved 
and I think that no visit to any battlefield is complete without visiting the German cemeteries and understanding them. And at this time of year, as we remember, it's good to cast the thoughts for Germany's dead in the Great War and what Colwitz's statues here, the mourning parents overlooking a son's grave, what they mean to the wider loss of all nations in that conflict. We end back in France on the British sector of the Western Front, not on the Somme or at Luz or Arras, but out in the less explored ground of the last 100 days of the Great War. We're close to the village of Goy, out in the fields up a long track into the vast open landscape of what was the Hindenburg Line battlefields where the German Hindenburg Line was constructed in 1917 and added to for the battles of 1918 as well. Here on this ridge line near to a farm called Guizancourt Farm is a small cemetery that bears that name, Guizancourt Farm Cemetery. As we come up the track, we see the cemetery out in the fields to our right, a small battlefield cemetery with a path, a grass path leading up to it. Ahead of us is the farm. Some of the buildings of the farm are original. This was an area fought over in October of 1918, but the ground wasn't pulverised in the same way that the Somme or Passchendaele was. Defending it with the trench line here was a whole series of bunkers. This is classic Hindenburg line with concrete machine gun bunkers with interlocking fields of fire. And we see those. They're not tall and proud. They're quite flat and low-lying, but they're there and you can walk up onto the ridge and see them. And you can see them dotted across the landscape and see how close together they are and how formidable a defensive line this would have been, considering that each one was bristling with German machine guns. Guizancourt Farm Cemetery is very much a battlefield cemetery in its original battlefield, surrounded by the memories, by the archaeology of that battle. And it makes it an interesting location to come to. We're well off the beaten track here in terms of battlefield tourism. That's not a bad thing. Not everyone can visit every cemetery. There's over 2,200 of them in Belgium and France from the First World War. It's a mighty number of silent cities, a mighty number of cemeteries that range in size from the massive Tyne Cot with nearly 12,000 to the big base hospital cemeteries like Etaples and Rouen. And then on the battlefield itself, the larger cemeteries like Polkapel and Delville Wood and Cerro Number no. 2 and so many others. But out on these big open landscapes, we find the smaller cemeteries like this one, which we, in many ways, as we've said previously in this podcast with the 28th Brigade Cemetery, we can connect to in a very different kind of way. And when we come here to see these cemeteries well off that beaten tourist trail, we find that the Commonwealth War Graves Commission maintain these in just the same way. There's no difference to them as to where they are, what they commemorate and how many people visit them. The gardeners are still out doing their work, ensuring that these remain important and influential and impactful gardens of remembrance, and that's what each one is. To the untrained eye, one cemetery is pretty much like another, but each has their own character in terms of the way they're part of a modern landscape, in terms of the way... They fit into the landscape of the past and also in terms of the way of the stories of the men who were buried in them. 
and how they came to be buried there. None of these cemeteries are there by accident. And this one was a cemetery established after the fighting here in October 1918. The village of Goy beneath was captured and the move up here to the Hindenburg Line saw units of the British 25th Division, including the 11th Sherwood Foresters and the 1st 8th Royal Warwickshire Regiment, attack these positions and some of their dead were then buried here on the battlefield. So in this case it contains the graves of men who literally fell on this spot. As we look along the ranks of the graves, it's a typical 1918 cemetery with a lot of young lads of 18 and 19 years old. There was that phrase, men of 18 in 1918, and they were the lads who fought those crucial, important battles of the last 100 days of the war. We see officers with decorations of ordinary soldiers, the Military Medal, for example, so they've been commissioned from the ranks, typical of this period of the war. Young boys of 18, 19, led by men in their 20s and 30s who'd seen the battles of the earlier period of the war and learnt so much from that experience. There's only 140 burials here, of which five are unknown, and it being a battlefield burial site, the vast majority are identified soldiers, so it gives us an insight into the kind of men that were fighting in this period of the war, one of the most costly periods of the war. When we were beating the enemy, we were pushing the enemy back, we were winning the war, but the scale of the casualties was still very, very high. War memorials that we will stand at this weekend and remember the dead in our acts of remembrance are often dominated by this period, this last period of the First World War. And here we see that even in this small cemetery in stark reality. The cemeteries are, of all nations, like time capsules. Through the names and the stories and the lives of the men buried there, we're transported back into the past to understand that generation, understand the things that they experienced and went through, the things that they saw and the cost, the price that they paid. Each stone, each cross, each grave is a face and a life. And this is something that we should never forget when we go to these places. I've often described the silent cities, the British and Commonwealth cemeteries of the Great War, as beacons on the landscape, and they are. They take us to the places at the very heart of the Great War. But it's true for all of the cemeteries, not just the British and Commonwealth ones. Each of these cemeteries that we've visited is part of a bigger story. It fits in like a piece of a jigsaw to that part of the landscape of the Western Front. They're an essential part of our understanding of the war. In them we must always reflect that most men came home, not everybody died. And I have to say that I find myself in these cemeteries thinking as much of the survivors as I do of the dead. It feels as if all the trails of the Great War, the paths of all those lives, whether they fell here or they went home, crisscross through these places. Because these men were not just loved by families back home, they were loved by those who stood beside them in the line. They never forgot them. And I witnessed with my own eyes how it was for a veteran to return to see the grave of a mate who had died so many decades before, but the remembrance of his face still burnt brightly in the mind's eye of that old man who stood by his grave. And this is true for the cemeteries full of Poilu, full of Deutsche Krieger, German warriors, full of American doughboys, Chinese labourers and all the other nationalities that these cemeteries reflect. 
They bring together the multinational faces of the Great War. The cemeteries are as much museums as places of rest for the dead, and they are just as part of the archaeology of the battlefields as the fragments of the war that lie in the fields, be they bullets, shrapnel balls or bunkers. They remain and will always remain at the heart of our journeys across these battlefields. The sad heart, the weeping heart, places of sadness, of reflection, but also, I like to believe, hope that help guide our path along the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.